Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, dear brothers and sisters, and welcome to episode 25 of the Convo podcast. Uh, today we've got a very exciting and hopefully, inshallah, quite um, informative as well as moving discussion. Um, we're talking about the Quran, um, and we've titled it today The Language of Miracles God's Word in a Godless World. So we're going to be exploring the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We're going to be exploring various dimensions of it. But primarily, we're going to be honing in on its miraculous nature. It's a revelation. It's something that's come from the heavens into our dunya. right? And that is quite incredible if we can wrap our minds around, uh, around it. So we're going to try and do that today, inshallah. And we've got with us a very, very special guest. Uh, he is a dear brother of ours, Brother Usman Malik. Um, and he joins us today to discuss uh, this particular matter. Uh, he's been a teacher for 12 years now. That has extensive experience. He specializes in studies of religion and he also teaches business studies. Uh, he's got a uh, Bachelor of Business in Accounting with a sub-major in Company Law. And he's got a particular passion for the language of the Qur'an, and he's spoken about it. He's uh, given talks and lectures on it in various community and youth settings. He's also quite the sportsman. He's got a particular interest in cricket uh, as well as swimming. Um, but uh, I'll hand it over to Sfian. We can start off our discussion. Yep. Barakallah uh, And welcome from myself to yourself, uh, Usman. For jo- thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, everyone uh, in the live audience for joining us tonight. Inshallah, will be a riveting episode. Um, a topic that, as, our, uh, as my co-host Hamza has said, is close to many of our hearts. So what we want to do, inshallah, is we want to start off by talking about the Qur'an as a miracle, uh, but put, put the question in context. It was a book, it is a book that was revealed to a particular people. It was revealed to all of mankind, but it was revealed in a, in a particular time, place, context. Um, so let's start with that first. Um, brother, if you can tell us um, a little bit about that, the incident of the revelation of the Qur'an and the people to whom it was physically revealed. Sure. First of all, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. It's a pleasure being on. Um, and I'm really excited, you know, having this opportunity to share um, my, I guess, my reflection and um, my journey towards, you know, trying to understand um, the miraculous nature of this speech. So um, before we begin, let's just establish the setting. So the Qur'an, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, um, This Arabic recital was revealed uh, to the Quraysh. And the Quraysh, uh, we all know the command of the Arabic language um, was uh, was amazing, right? And the Arabic that was prevalent during the time and pre-Islamic, uh, pre-Islamic days, even before the advent of Rasulullah was something to marvel, really. Um, you know, the literature, the, the control um, of the Arabic language and the expression of the Arabic language um, was absolutely phenomenal. And um, to, uh, to truly understand this, we'll dig into a little bit of what type of Arabic you know, what, what type of Arabic um, they were involved in and what's the main differences between the Arabic that was spoken and expressed during that time um, and uh, Fusha Arabic and spoken uh, Arabic. Because we often 
um, relate or we often assign Quranic Arabic um, to something that's fusha or to form uh, that's formal. But in reality, um, we're going to explore yeah. just the different kind of levels of Arabic there is um, to get, get a greater context in terms of, you know, how exceptional the marvel of Ar- the Arabic language in the Quran truly was. So just a um, quick question on that. So was the language that the Quraysh possessed and that they were really, really good at, was that like... In terms of its style, its delivery, its sort of um, its foundational, you know, sort of features, you could say, was that the same as the Quran, or was there some difference, or was it like the same thing? Well, how could you describe that? Okay, so that's a very good question. Um, let's start off with a little hierarchy of the types of Arabic we have, just really briefly. Yeah. Um, yep. So, inshallah, first you have like spoken Arabic, right? So, spoken or slang uh, Arabic, which you find, which you can find spoken, you know, just on the streets or in conversation in in the Arab countries or amongst uh, you know those who speak Arabic within families. Right. What about here, like if you go to Lakemba, for example. Would you classify that as the same kind or is that different? Yeah, well, it depends in terms of what generation you're talking about. If you're talking about um, our generation, normally um, it's predominantly slang with maybe aspects of fusha in it. Mm, okay. But but I think um, I think if you want an example of fusha, we would, we would be looking at formal TV shows, formal media, um, and then obviously maybe conversation Arabic for those who came from a previous generation. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and then obviously with Fusha um, and Brother Sufyan, you can obviously add in as well. You have more kind of organized structure. You have, um, you know, you have more organization between the sentences um, and you have more of a formalized kind of approach to that. So that's, that's Fusha, all right? Now, ancient Arabic and Fusha, there's a world of difference. And this is where the, this is where the jump can be really seen in terms of the, the control, the coherence, um, the organization, the symmetry of Arabic that's found in ancient Arabic mm. far, far surpasses, you know, the Arabic which we assign to uh, normal fusha. And, and really? So, so even now our formal Arabic, now the fusha Arabic, that pales in comparison to how it was with the Arabs at the time of Rasulullah Ab- Absolutely. And what I want to uh, quickly do, I'll take this opportunity to explain why it became so refined See, language is an expression of, of a human being. Yeah. And this expression is directly influenced by our external environment. Yeah. So the fact that the pre-Islamic Arabs were geographically isolated, it kind of was a perfect mm-hmm. cultivating grounds for this language and this expression to refine itself. I because see, if you look at the evolution of language, it's directly related to a geographical evolution of people, right? As you spread, you mix with different cultures, you have different communities, then the Arabic it becomes culture. like adulterated over yeah. time. Absolutely. I guess why, that's also why then you have, even in Fusha, you've got, well, I assume in Fusha could be wrong, different dialects and things for different regions, things like that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We all know the, the different dialects, the use of uh, the off uh, and uh, the omission of some letters, etc. So that's the first reason why the Arabic was um, refined for years and years and years. The second reason is quite interesting um, and that's got to do with the external environment. And you, may, you might say, how? Well, you know, the Arabs had a very 
kind of like a dull, very simple external environment. There wasn't much going on. There was pretty much just sand, the odd oasis. A lot of sand. A lot of sand, the odd oasis. Um, and, And that really meant that they expressed themselves in a lot of imagery. And the distinguishing quality between ancient Arabic and Fusha, there's many, but we'll touch on just one, is the use of imagery in language. And, um, and, and that's a result of the external environment. And so we know that from kids, we're all teachers. The more external stimuli the mind has, the less creative it actually becomes. So, you know, the external environment had a profound impact on the Arabs expressing themselves very, very um, visually and um, with a lot of imagery. And I want to share one example, inshallah, just to convey convey, um, what I mean. Okay, so so we have a conversation between a husband and a wife. Um, And this is ancient Arabic, right? So the Is this like a recorded actual historical conversation? So this is yeah, this is the examples that they give in uh, the books of Arabic, and for those who try to understand ancient Arabic, because ancient Arabic is a tool for understanding the Quran. Yeah, right. And um, so we'll get into that after. So, so the example as follows: You may have heard this. So the husband claims to the wife that um, you know I'm very generous, and the wife says, you know, how are you generous? We have absolutely nothing in the house. Yeah. And then his reply is an example of, you know, how they really communicate with one another. You have, it's just like, you know, in Egypt, Egypt is known as the land of the Qadis, right? You have the great Abdul Bas, Abdul Samad coming from there. And then you have the odd people in the street, mashallah, reciting so magnificently. Hmm. So the same thing here, you had the average husband and wife, you know, just speaking absolutely mind-blowing poetry. So the wife says, we have nothing. Yeah. The husband's reply was, a house on top of a hill does not get along with rain. So he, he's recited that in, in, in some wait, sort of... Wait, wait, let, let me think about that for a second. <laughs> so I want you guys, I want the audience to, uh, to imagine it because, like I said, there's a lot of imagery. A house on top of a hill, yep. right, does not get along with a lot of rain. Okay. So what he's trying to communicate is the rain is a metaphor for the ni'mat of Allah, yep. right, falling down. And... The house being on top of a hill is an expression of his status, elevated status, in that when the ni'mats do fall, right, they won't, if yeah. you're on top of the hill... You don't catch a lot of them. Uh, yeah. Okay. And, and they'll it'll naturally fall down to the people in the valley, right? So he's saying, yes, we have nothing, but the reason is, is because whenever I receive something from the bounties uh. of Allah, I pass them down to the less fortunate. So yeah. that's an example of how they used to just communicate. Um, a, a casual conversation. We should give that a shot these days. So everyone should go and say to their wives that, you know, we're really generous and see how the conversation goes. And, and then the answer can just be um, a house on top of the hill doesn't get along with the rain. And that's it and see where it goes. Absolutely. There's, just, um, uh, there's also in, in a lot of the um, hadith and some ayat of the Quran as well, um, obviously that imagery comes through like where Prophet Sallam will speak about uh, date stalks or like a single fiber of a date stalk to describe something to do with Islam or a blessing or, sure. um, and similarly, like, I can't remember exactly, but it's as if you're passing something through a needle or passing something through uh, a hair. There's a okay. lot of imagery yeah. like that to yeah. do with, yeah, yeah to do with uh, uh, the, the landscape, the geographical landscape. Yeah. 
That's the one. What was it? Say it again. Um, so what I can recall of it is the chances of entering paradise was as small as a camel passing through the eye of a needle. Exactly, so, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And even, I, I forget so the references yeah. now, but even the needle and the camel had specific contextual realities that demonstrated their sort of the power of using them specifically in those examples. Absolutely, absolutely. And there's just but, one more, one more yeah. comment on that. The yeah. ancient Arabic is, like I said earlier, it's the tool for our scholars to unlock the deeper meanings of the Quran. And I'll give you one example so the audience can also understand. Um, See, so the Quran was revealed in an Arabic which was m most in line with the Arabic of the Bedouins, the most, yeah. the most traditional type of Arabic. Now, if you look at early tafsir, even two or three hundred years after the Prophet you have in the commentary when scholars are engaging in discourse and trying to figure out what a certain word means, they have, like, to understand a certain word, they might say, قَالَ Arab." So you have, and like say, what did the Arabs think of this? And, yeah. the, and the Mufassirin themselves were Arab. So what yeah. did they mean by, okay, the Arabs meant it this way. They themselves are Arabs. So they're talking the OG, about, they're talking the about the, yeah. Sorry? the OG Arabs. Yeah, the OG Arabs. So they're talking really about how did the how did the Bedouins really understand this word in the context um, of the true meaning. So ancient Arabic is, you know, it, it's a tool that puts a deeper understanding of the Quran together. It's, it's amazing. I guess from that we can um, that gives us sort of the, the the foundation from which to then ask, okay, well, how like how then do we understand the Qur'an, right? We understand that the Qur'an is miraculous, but how do we sort of link that understanding that you've just explained with regards to the language and the depth and the sort of the, the substance that it has, how can that then be tied into that concept of a miracle? Like how does that, or how does the Qur'an establish itself as a miracle in terms of the concept of a miracle? Mm. And what, what would its purpose then be? Yeah, yeah good, great question. Um, you know, we're very familiar with the Qur'an being uh, a book of hudan, guidance, um, yeah. shifa, rahma, it's a nurul mubin. But have we, so, so this, is, this is the part that really excites me and it really kind of, um, you know, it's a catalyst for further exploration. We often call and ascribe the Qur'an as a miracle. But, you know, what purpose does a miracle serve and what are the effects of a miracle on a person? And then can we take those same effects and say that the Quran is a miracle? So, you know, informally, we all know what a miracle is. It's something yeah. that makes your, your, your jaw drop, right? But formally, like a miracle would be something that defies the laws of, uh, you know, human beings and the laws of the universe. Something that's you know, not within the parameters of what we expect to be uh, yeah. in the, like the reality of our dunya and our world and everything. Absolutely. Um, and, um, you know, often there's no rational or logical explanation for that. And then the objective of, you know, whatever's been shown in that miracle is to provide irrefutable evidence to back up, it, to back up um, what it's trying to prove. So that's the key word here, irrefutable evidence um, mm. after witnessing. So that's truly what, I mean, that's one way we can understand what a miracle is, I guess. Yeah, so it's about sort of establishing 
the truth, like the unquestionable truth of something. Yeah, so absolutely. What then of the Quran? How do we? What's the link that we can then say? Okay, well, you've got a book, and and I, I think this is also part of the discussion about book speech. You know, which do we consider the Quran? But the Quran, book speech, however you want to, you know, classify it, and I guess you can give us some insight into that. How can that be classified as a miracle? Because okay, let's say you know Musa alayhi salam comes, sea is split in half. You know, you see these miraculous things: people rise from the dead, moon being split, all that kind of business, right? And you think, wow, this is mind blowing. Sure. And then you've got speech. Where? How does that measure up? How do we say mm-hmm. that that in fact is a miracle? Yeah. So look, the Quran. It prides itself in being a miracle, uh, a unique miracle in one or two ways, which I'll just point out. Number one, the nature of the Quran's miracle is distinct, where previous miracles were normally, you know, observed by the eye or yep. the faculty of sight. Like you mentioned, Musa al-Islam splitting of the sea, his hand being, um, you know, full of light. Um, whereas this miracle is very distinct and. Um, because it's in the form of speech, right? Um, and then, so so one of the one of the striking qualities of this miracle is, and, and the contrast between the Quran's miracle and previous miracles is that previous miracles were so when a messenger used to come to their people, the external miracle used to be the evidence to authenticate the book. So yeah, I'll give you yeah, an example. Yeah. So when Isa al-Islam comes and he says. You know, so I've come to you with clear signs, and you know, he says, So when he says, you know, I'm going to create a bird, a pigeon out of clay, I'm going to breathe in it, um, and then it'll become real. You know, when he heals the blind, the leper, and uh, when he create, when he basically gives life to the dead, all those external miracles are to authenticate the injil. Yes, but the yes. Quran, on the other hand, subhanAllah, this is amazing. The Quran, on the other hand, does not need an external miracle. Yeah. That's right, Sufyan, uh, as you mentioned, it's both the miracle and the book mm. in one. That's so, pretty mind-blowing. So, um, so yeah, that, that's absolutely just, you know, it opens up, again, the next question as well, like why is it a miracle, which we'll, which we'll go into. So, so sorry, sorry. As far as speech is concerned, yeah. Because um, I'm just trying to wrap my head around. Like, I'm think about it from the sort of regular Joe's perspective, right? Which is like, my perspective. I classify. <laughs> it's the same yeah. with us all. But if yeah. okay, if someone, I don't know, what's something crazy and miraculous that someone can do right in front of my eyes? I don't know. If someone yeah. moves their hand around and they bring something about out of thin air, right? I don't yeah. know. They produce a flower or a cricket bat, whatever, right? They do that in front of my eyes. I'm going to be wowed, right? Mm, Presuming absolutely. it's no trickery or whatever. But then if someone comes and speaks to me in a phenomenally eloquent way, then I don't know, maybe it's because we don't sort of have that capacity of, of Arabic and we kind of need that to appreciate it. Um, but that's why I, I, we sort of raised the question, how can speech be to the same degree of miracle, so to speak, as things that you could say see with your own eyes. Of course. Um, 
Like, firstly, speech. I think uh, number one, speech is often really underrated. Like, speech is so powerful. Um, you know, the start of guidance was marked by a speech. And then, um, you know, like bayan is something which expression that Allah has taught us is it's something that we must um, seek to improve. And we have to remember that speech and bayan is the kind of path to access divine guidance, right? It's through bayan that the creator has spoken to us. Um, and, and finally, it was marked by the start of, uh, sorry, uh, it marked the start of, start of guidance and now it's ended, you know, the final guidance with a perfect speech. Uh-huh. So I want to say the human brain simply cannot organize speech in such a profound, conscious manner. Like we can use a simple example, like we can use a simple example. If we were to transcribe the entire podcast, yeah, right? And then, and then translate that that into writing, yep. and then critically analyze our structure, right? Our our sentence structure. <laughs> it would be a bit all over the place at times. <laughs> That's right, and um, you know, down to a sentence level, we'll, there'll be enormous mistakes. Down to a structural level, there'll be there'll be enormous mistakes. So the human mind simply does not and cannot organize speech over such a long time. And you know what blows me away is. Speech over 23 years. Yeah, that's... Over, over, over 23 years. And I want to just remind the audience, I think maybe um, we should have pointed this out. So Quran, guys, the Quran is speech, right? So the Quran is speech. Um, it's, a, it's a recital. And that makes it exponentially harder to... Um, so the implications are such that it makes it exponentially more miraculous that you're able to speech speak in such an articulate way, um, yeah, so inshallah, so, so that's the claim the Quran's making that this speech is beyond human capabilities. And we're going to explore why, inshallah, um, why yeah. this speech. There's, um, I just, just while you guys were talking, I was just um, thinking about subhanAllah, there's a beautiful hadith which actually brings together so much of what we're saying. Where, you know, Hamza, you were talking about someone conjures something. I suppose it's also a cultural thing for us miracles have sort of just become associated almost like synonymous with magic. Like we probably call it magic and we'd probably yeah. not so much call it a miracle. Miracle seems more traditional even in its language and its implications. Yeah. But let's say, you know, something um, not, like, I don't know why you went with a flowery bat or but, but let's say we conjure something. It's either a flower or a bat, but hey, let's combine them. <laughs> I amalgamated it just to, um, but yeah, let's say, let's say something conjures something. You're talking about magic. And then subhanAllah Osman, you're talking about speech and there's a beautiful hadith in which the Prophet says that mm. bayani that, that indeed a part of like um, speech is magic. Yeah. You know, subhanAllah, like, subhanAllah. like some speech is as effective as magic. Because it moves the hearts and the minds, it changes people's actions yes. and opinions, it can change lives, it's incredible what yes. speech can do. And I guess it's just like, an observation, sorry Sufyan, an observation as well is that I guess you know we, we the subtitle in this podcast was God's Word in a Godless World, um, and the thing is we're in a very material world, and one of the key parts of this world, this dunya as it's shaped now, is seeing is believing, right? Mm-hmm. That whole mantra, seeing is believing, and if you don't see, you don't believe. 
So we prioritize that sort of that immediate material impact at the expense of other things. So then speech is degraded. Everything else, all your other senses, all your other rational faculties are put aside because, hey, seeing is believing. So I think that kind of plays into us maybe not appreciating the miracle of speech as we should. Yeah. 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 Like, I mean, I guess that that sort of takes us on to the next sort of question or, or issue to explore, which is that element of being mesmerized by something, mm. right? What was it about the Quran that actually mesmerized the Quraysh, that actually had that effect on the Quraysh? And maybe if you can give us some examples of mm. yeah. your studies. So, so this is where it truly gets fascinating. And uh, this is where, you know, as Muslims, as people who profess to this sacred text, this transcendent um, revelation, this is where, you know, I'm yet still to kind of explore this in a studious way. And what is it, the question that why were they so mesmerized? And the fact that they were mesmerized in such a way, um, you know, it begs a lot of questions in terms of why aren't we mesmerized? Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. and um, so we'll look at some examples. Number one, just on, just on uh, the miracle, we'll go back really quickly because it relates to this. In Arabic, it's mu'ajaza, a miracle, right? And it comes from the word i'jaz or ajaza. Okay, so we call this study ajaz al-Qur'an, the, the incapacitating power of the Qur'an. So, so the root word ajaza, like, is got to do with to incapacitate someone, to bring them to their knees, to totally bring someone to surrender. And that, that's exactly what the mushrikin of Mecca felt. There were completely overtaken and like you mentioned Sophia mesmerized by the kalam the mode the structure like I said the symmetry um, you know the complex uh, you know organization of the Quran um, and you know we have we have examples with the sirah all throughout, throughout the sirah for this um, you know and the, the the most amazing thing is there were involuntary actions and when when you have an involuntary action by by someone reacting to something, it just further tells you how powerful it was. And we all know that, you know, when the Prophet started reciting Quran publicly, he was reciting Surah Najm, and this is famous in the Sirah, and Surah Najm has an ayah of sajda, sujood. And we all know that the mushrikeen of Mecca fell into prostration, right? So, like, power, um, dominance, control, and, um, and we have stories of, this is before Abu Sufyan um, accepted Islam. We had Abu Jahl, Abu Sufyan, um, and the leaders secretly always trying to listen to the Prophet recite the Quran. And there's a famous story where, you know, they would listen at night continuously and they ran into one another. I'm sure you guys are familiar with that one. I'm sure that would have been an incredibly awkward meeting. <laughs> can you imagine? Yeah, can you imagine? What were you um, doing here? I wasn't listening to the Quran. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. And, you know, they ran into each other not once, but twice and thrice. And um, so there was something that was really drawing them in. But uh, the third example, which I'll quickly run through, was um, a very famous example in the Sirah. That was uh, Utsbah bin Rabia. Um, and so this is when the Quran was becoming, uh, in their perspective, a public nuisance, right? Mm-hmm. So they had to really get it out of the public side because it was just, it was so powerful and it was just taking the hearts away. So they hired Utsubin Rabia, which he was, his command of Arabic was exceptional. Um, you know, his status, he accumulated wealth. He was someone of, you know, great 
uh, great status uh, among Socorro. Even even the leaders such as Abu Jahal would come to him and. Um, are, we, are we talking generally, sort of as a as a person, or specifically with Arabic, or a bit of both? Okay, so his influence was quite. He was quite the celebrity. Um, he was well known in the courts of the um, Roman Emperor, the Abyssinian mm. King, the Persian King. So he went around business, Arabic, poetry. Mm. Yeah. Um, he had the whole package. So he was hired to speak to uh, Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam, right? To see if he could do some some control. And we all know the famous story where he went and he offered the Prophet um, He spoke to him. And just to move through the short, uh, story fast, and the Prophet responded in sort of fusilat, as we all know. And the reaction and the dominance, like I mentioned, the jazz, the, the way it incapacitates um, the hearts was amazing. He, you know, to one extent, Abu Sufyan narrated this um, after he became a Muslim because he was in the, amongst the audience watching. So that was kind of like they hired him. Yeah. Um, he had to stop the Prophet and put his um, hand over his mouth. There was involuntary tears. And he came back a man who was completely changed. And, um, you know, they, it's been narrated that he looked even differently. He, he looked different. It changed his composure. He was a man mm. that truly, um, it's funny saying this, but I, I guess he did experience a miracle, right? Um, yeah, yeah, it must have. To, to have that profound an impact on a human being, it's, yeah. Not normal, so to speak. Is it, was it? Was it? Can you share? Was it like the first couple of ayat of the surah, or was it? Um, um, so, so according to some narrations, it was ayah one to thirteen. Okay. Um, it was just part the uh, past the part where sort of Fusila talks about the punishment that came to add, um, and where Allah Subhanahu wa Taala basically, you know, gives a domination to um, to the Quraysh, as in you know, this kind of punishment could come. Um, but he returned and this was a disaster. It was a public disaster because he, uh, he, he, was, he was on disaster. show. He was yeah. on show. Can you imagine him walking back? Um, and, then, and then everyone sees this figure that's been dominated. Anyway, so just to cut it short, there was a crisis meeting held and he needed to hold a press conference the next day. You know, just, <laughs> to, give form, yeah. just to give a formal statement as yeah. his true position. All right. Um, so the press conference or was recorded in uh, sort of Madathir where he said... Because you called it a press conference, it almost sounded like you were going to say it was re- broadcast by CNN and BBC and everything yeah. else. Because you know what? It was damage control, right? Yeah. So um, it was a little bit too late. So he comes out and he says, you know, Guys, this is nothing but, you know, ancient magic, right? Mm. And then, you know what I find so fascinating, Sufyan, you mentioned magic before as well. What I find so fascinating, whenever the Quraysh associated the Quran with magic, they were inadvertently acknowledging its transcendence. It's like admitting defeat. Yeah, because, I mean, okay, so what do you call magic? You don't call magic that so- something that sounds smart. You call something magic which, because the Quraysh could simply not characterize any part of Rasulullah's recitation of the Quran of the human speech. They, they, they can't explain match it. it. They, they yeah. couldn't match it. So in a way, they were acknowledging transcendence because transcendence is something that's not within the human capability, right? So inadvertently, they were acknowledging transcendence. And very interesting, he said, in So this is uh, magic. The very ayah after that, he says, 
in uh, it's kind of like, hang on, I've just called it magic. I've actually made the problem worse because <laughs> I'm actually praising it in a way. Yeah. Um, so let, let me, let me kind of, let me, um, demonstrate. A little bit. yeah, yeah, yeah. And let me just say, um, in, uh, in Hadha illa qawlu al-bashar instead, uh, actually it's not magic because that's still something. It's just uh, the word of a human being. Yeah. Beautiful. It's, it's like, like the first statement, subhanAllah, is like you're saying, you know, Exactly. And then when you think, hang on, if I've just called it supernatural, that might, you know, link it to the divine. So let me just point. Absolutely. Let me just quickly backtrack and say what I meant. <laughs> I, re- I retract that statement. I officially retract that statement. But, that's um, right. That's right. Imagine, like, just imagine. I think sometimes because we're very sort of, we're caught up in our own spheres, in our own day and age, mm. I, I, I feel like sometimes we don't fully appreciate just how incredibly powerful that kind of example is. And not just that, all the examples that you mentioned, because it's like they, those individuals, that group, that society had every political reason to just shut it down, to not submit, right? They had, like you were saying, right, they had their PR on show. They had everything going, right? They had to project themselves as being superior. Every incentive to not submit. Right. And then suddenly they have absolutely no option. But as you mentioned, an involuntary submission. That's incredible. Like imagine, just imagine you've got Palestinians, Israelis, and then some Palestinians just speak. They just say something and the Israelis turn around and run home. And they're shaken and they say, we can't do this. We can't do this. Like imagine the world witnessing that. Absolutely. It would be incredible. We'd say, whoa, this is something, this is not normal. And that's the kind of thing that they experienced. Just, just to chime in here a little bit, and not to take away from the, you know, the the grandeur of the Quran itself, and you know, it's it's uh, magnificence by giving you know an example that is you know not not worthy of it. But you know, we talk about today in our day and age, we can't really appreciate it because we have different f- sort of terms of reference. Um, I I watched a like you know being into poetry myself I have a, a love and an appreciation for language and I watched a um a documentary many many years ago on uh, a famous um, Urdu poet and I there's a scene frozen, in it and obviously way, this is, your video looks frozen anyway go ahead perhaps it'll oh, still hear that's fine okay so so this so this is actually. Uh, 19, let's say early 19 or mid 1990s production. And it's obviously the setting of it is because it's talking about a poet from like the 17th or 18th century. So they've obviously constructed the setting like, you know, accordingly. And there's a scene in here in which they talk about a poet and how he's trying to make it big. He's trying to make it in the world, you know, because that's his career. So he comes in and he reads off a piece of paper and the reason he's there in that, in that majlis, in that sitting, is because someone has summoned him and said that he's actually saying, um, he's, he's, he's casting aspersions, he's criticizing the disciple of the king. So this disciple calls him in and he says, well, now read your poetry in front of the king. What, you, what were you saying about me? So he's kind of summoned him. And he's like, it's so interesting 
the 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 poet reads his poetry, which is criticizing him. Um, and despite the criticism, the person who summoned him ends up saying "vah vah," you know, like yeah. appreciating. Like he can't help himself. He the praise just flows out of his mouth, you know. So in Sykes' power, that's one representation of a, and he had to be a traditional historical because nowadays that sort of oh, mesmerization or fascination over forget divine speech, but even like poetry, it's just not commonplace anymore. You know, Absolutely. I almost feel just to make, just to you know, clarify the point I'm trying to make is that I almost feel that we need a mm. fundamental change in the way that we recognize and form meaning and appreciate beauty to be able to even register the beauty of the Quran itself. Like mm. it's not the Quran, it's us. Subhanallah. We need to fundamentally reconfigure yeah. ourselves to be able to appreciate the it as the miracle is there. That, that's timeless. It has been there, will be there, remains there. But who are the ones receiving it? I guess that's the big question. And that's, I guess, leads into the next point of discussion. Why, Usman, why is it important that we talk about this? Like, we as Muslims, we have a familiarity with the Quran, right? Um, it's, you know, been in our household, subhanAllah, adorns the walls even. Perhaps that's not a great thing at times if you don't even give it its due attention, but why is this miracle of the Qur'an so critically important for us to talk about? Yep, so great question, and I think somewhat, I mean, I can't really, um, like my experiences may not necessarily reflect reality, but, you know, growing up, I really didn't hear much about the linguistic miracle of the Qur'an. Yeah. Um, that may just be because of my limited kind of exposure, but... No, I, I think that's... Like yeah. you could probably say that's, I don't know, look, it was definitely for me as well and the youth around us at the time when we were growing up, we're still young, by the way. Um, yeah. It wasn't really focused on it. It was like, yes, you're meant to read the Quran. You're meant to, like even reading it was like step one, yeah? Mm -hmm. And then if you can understand it, be it through the translation or some other means, that's like the bonus, right? That's extra. But then to understand its depth as a miracle is almost not really within the picture, Absolutely. I want to take you to uh, one eye in Surah Baqarah. And um, it's beautiful. Like, uh, so basically, it's where Ibrahim alayhi salam says, Ibrahim, Rabbi arini mawta. So Ibrahim alayhi salam asks Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I want to see how you bring life okay, from, uh, from death, okay, how you yeah. resurrect. Um, and then Allah subhanahu wa responds by saying, What, Ibrahim, do you not believe? Now, Ibrahim alayhi reply is what is so deep. He says, Yes, absolutely, I do. So he says, Ya Allah, I do believe, but I want to witness this miracle so as for the satisfaction of my heart. Mm, yeah. So, so the Prophet so, so that tells you about the implication of, or maybe you could even say the necessity to some degree of um, a believer experiencing a miracle because yeah. it's a really, it's a way where it, you could say you graduate from yes, yes. basic belief to as Ibrahim said, to a belief that is more satisfying and more sweet. And it's like that that seal, it stamps the belief. It's like, that's it. There's, there's actually nothing else. You know, there is no 
other thing, there's no other reality. This is it. This belief is the be all and end all. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, uh, like, like, like I mentioned, if you look at the three levels of faith, you have Islam, Iman, and Ihsan, right? Yeah. Muslim, Mu'min, uh, basically. And I feel that, you know, a, a miracle, experience a miracle, just, you know, you kind of get pushed through these levels. Um, and then it makes it a lot easier to read, reach Ihsan when, when you experience this. And, um, although this miracle is somewhat different because it has to almost be unlocked. And I want to bring it back to what Sufan, what you just said about changing the culture, right? It's almost as if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has intended that he wants this nation to have a connection with academia and literature and, and writing because, um, the more, uh, the more you have that connection, the more you unlock this miracle. So it's kind of tied in with study. It's, it's almost tied in with this culture of learning literature. Yeah. Um, so, so that's, that's one reason why, as Muslims, we need to really um, be able to access this miracle, and especially in today's day and age where we literally, you know, we say we need a miracle. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Um, so what about, okay, so we've, we've had a fairly decent discussion about um, sort of the elements of what a miracle is, the Quran, its language, and so forth. But what about some sort of authorities in the field or scholarship that um, ties it all together? Like, what can we take from it? Because especially those who might not have that sort of access to the Arabic language, um, I guess as much as we all should, uh, how can we come to acknowledge or appreciate? Because let's say we as Muslims, we want to, as you said, Usman, graduate to that next level, right? Have that firm belief and that undeniable conviction. Mm-hmm. What can help us do? Are there examples, authorities in the field, something that can push us in that direction? Yeah, look, to be, uh, you'll be surprised. There's actually quite a bit of work that has been done in this field. The problem is a lot of it's not translated. There mm-hmm. hasn't been much um, kind of bridging that into English. But some modern scholars, you have um, Mustan Sarmir. He's done quite a bit of work in symmetry and coherence. You have Imam uh, Hamiduddin Farahi. Um, he did uh, the work Nizam al-Quran, coherence in the Quran. Um, but, you know, what fascinated me was the work of Dr. Raymond Farron. And Dr. Raymond Farron, just a quick, I'll give you a quick background uh, of him. Um, he was an American, yeah. right? He's still As in, he's no longer an American? Did he, like, revoke his citizenship or something? <laughs> Alhamdulillah, yeah. So he's American and, um, you know, he started his journey studying literature. He had a fascination for English literature. Yeah. A deep fascination. Anyway, his scholarship meant, subhanAllah, you know, the plans of Allah. So his scholarship meant that he had to serve in the Navy for a little while. Yep. The Navy, to cut it short, the Navy goes to Egypt. He's fascinated by Arabic, absolutely blown away. He takes in, uh, intensive uh, classes. Um, he gets a little bit of a stronghold in Arabic, um, goes back home, and he decides to, you know, to explore Arabic more. He goes to Kuwait, and before you know it, he basically is studying for his master's in Arabic, classical Arabic, classical Arabic literature. Um, and obviously when you study Arabic, the fund- one of the fundamental texts are the Quran. Yeah. And then when his Arabic came to a level where he could kind of see the, the structure and um, you could say the foundation of the verses and the composition, 
it blew him away. It blew him away. Um, mashallah, he went on and um, to become a professor in Arabic at the University of Kuwait. So, wow. And um, so he accepted Islam. He came to the conclusion that this cannot be the word of a human being. This, is not yeah. spe- this speech does not resemble anything that humans possess. Anyway, he... Um, so it's like what, like what you were saying. He experienced the miracle. Subhanallah. He to was some extent. Yeah. Go on, Sufyan. No, no, I was just, I was yeah. just wondering, like, I think that's a name, inshallah, we can go in and look into it. But what, what extent do you think he, w- he would have been able to, like, so you know how you say today we're quite distant from the language in the past, the Arabs themselves are masters of the language. Now you have, you know, 1,000, 1,400, whatever years later, you have a, someone who's tried to sort of get back as close as possible to understanding, appreciating the language. To what extent do you think someone like that would appreciate the miracle? Look, um, uh, in terms of Dr. Raymond Farron, right? Yeah. You're asking? Just clarify. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so it certainly goes a long way in terms of uh, accepting this as a, as a divine book from a, from a, a, a divine source. And um, that would definitely mean that he could further see. You have to remember the miracle kind of starts almost at that point. So it's kind of like a starting point and which we'll touch on later, inshallah, um, if, we, if we explore some other areas. But I think for him, it's, it's just a starting point. And that meant from that point, he actually, um, you know, he did some rigorous study and he published a book. And that's the examples which I'm going to, inshallah, use as my source as well. He studied a book called Symmetry and Coherence in the Quran. where he Because the greatest criticism for, from Orientalists and Western academia of classical Arabic, the greatest criticism. Look, they acknowledge that at a, at a verse level, it's brilliant. They acknowledge yeah. that it has deeply embedded complex structures and all these literary qualities. But their biggest criticism was there's no substance in structure. Like, mm. you know, maybe they haphazardly just, you know, one verse saying yeah. this, yeah. another verse saying that. And that's very important because as Muslims reading the Quran, we may experience something similar, right? So his explicit study was to show, hang on, this, is, this can't be furthest from the truth. The symmetry and the thematic connection is, is, uh, is what makes it uh, truly miraculous. So his study, his study was on the symmetry and the ring composition, which I'm going to, inshallah, later go into, how the Quran is so phenomenally organized um, that you find all these beautiful patterns and these rich, complex structures that are not incoherent, but rather exemplary in their coherence. Well, let's just get into it then. Um, What are some of these examples that we can furnish? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, we'll we'll do a selection. What I want to focus on just for the audience as well, I won't go into any examples that require, you know, too much knowledge of grammar. Just whatever you find compelling. Okay, so what I find compelling is a ring structure. Yeah. So we have the themes organized um, in a chiasma structure. So a chiasma structure is when you have content or you have a thematic link where the first portion thematically matches the last, the second matches the second last, third, third last, fourth, fourth last, and you sometimes have a middle section. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. Um, So Dr. Raymond Farron, basically his research suggests that the entire Quran consists of rings. So you have ayahs that have this ring structure. You have surahs that have this ring structure and then the entire Quran. So you have circles within circles. So I'm going to share 
Um, an ayah that has this structure. So we'll, we'll delve into yeah. the ayatul kursi, the verse of the throne. So let's just analyze it really quickly. So the first part of ayatul kursi. Allahu la ilaha illahu al-hayy al-qayyum. So al-hayy al-qayyum. So it's talking about yeah. Allah. The last part, wa huwa al-aliyu al-azim. Al-ali and azim. So sifa, sifa. Right? So we're starting to ring structure. Let's go to the second part. Sleep nor slumber does overtake Allah. Yeah. The second last, right? He does not tire in the preservation of the heavens and the earth. Hmm. Third part, to him belongs the heavens and the earth. The third last part, Right, his kursi expands over the heavens and the earth. And then we close in by um, uh, that you know, no one can get intercession without his permission. The fourth last part, so no one can take from his knowledge without his permission. Right, so you have permission. And then most beautifully, in a spectacular fashion, you have the middle, very middle, So he knows what's before them and after them. And notice that strategically placed in the middle. So the middle of something is between what's after and what's before. So you have this uh, beautiful, amazing ring structure in Ayatul Kursi. So we can... um, but what, what really strikes me, and we have a... We have a, we have a special guest with us. We have a guest. <laughs> um, let's delve into the next example, shall we? This is from Surah Yusuf, right? So Surah Yusuf. Everyone, you know, Surah Yusuf impresses just everyone in a different way. But what struck me, so this was my first exposure to chiasmus, to the ring yeah. structure. That's why I've got a special fascination with it. So thematically, the story of Yusuf al-Islam... It's it's not a story that the Prophet wrote and some sort of fairy tale. It's actually events in the life of uh, Yusuf al-Islam. So uh, the way that Allah narrates it is amazing. So let's observe the ring structure in Surah Yusuf. Yeah. First, you have um, uh, you have uh, the dream. Where Yusuf al-Islam, as a young boy, sees a dream. Right. That's the very first kind of major theme. The very last major theme, all right, if you go back all the way to the bottom, so reading ring structure is Yusuf al-Islam says, you know, when, when he raises his father on the arsh, he says to his father that, you know, this is the interpretation of the dream I saw when I was a young boy. And then he said, mm-hmm that my Lord has definitely made this dream manifest into reality. So dream, dream. Yeah. What's the second thing that happens in, uh, in the story? Um, his brother's plot against him. Unkutulu Yusuf, let's kill him. Then they said, no, no, la taqutulu Yusuf wa fi We won't kill him, we'll throw him down. Yeah. Um, so that's the plot. And the very kind of second last thing is the brothers ask for forgiveness against the plot. Right, mm. they they admit to the mistake. They said, Like Allah has preferred you over over us, and we've definitely failed. So we've got we've got a structure. The next thing is Yusuf al-Islam um, is seduced. Right. Well, the uh, the king's wife tries to seduce Yusuf al-Islam. Um, the third last thing is her admission. Right. Her admission. She says. 
she says kulla hashalillah ma alimna alayhi min su like you know i i i know nothing ill of yusuf al islam ana rabbatuhu an nafsi like it was me that tempted him the fourth thing is yusuf al islam into jail wadakhala ma'ahu sijna fatayan right he yes. into jail the fourth last thing is he basically is exempt and he's released from jail right then the fifth thing is waqala al malik inni ara and you know uh, to to the end of the ayah the the malik the king sees a dream of the seven fat cows getting eaten by the seven skinny cows etc yeah. the the um the symmetrical connection the fifth last thing is yusuf al islam interprets the dream so we have this amazing ring composition as i've just uh, clearly laid out where thematically you have absolutely beautiful coherent symmetry and connection Can I just also point out that it's not only the ring structure that makes it beautiful you have simultaneous other structures going on in the background yeah, yeah. and I want to give you one example this is just like it blows me away so you have a ring structure going on but simultaneously you have a linear progression of themes as well right yeah. just to make it exponentially more miraculous so I'll give you two examples of that uh, the shirt in Yusuf al-Islam's story is a symbol that kind of traces its way through the surah in a linear fashion. Yeah. The first incident with the shirt was waja'u ala qamisihi bidamin kadhib. They bought a shirt with um, false blood on it, right? That was the first instance. The second use of the shirt was attest in kana qamisuhu qaddamin qablin like if the shirt is ripped from the back, he's guilty if it's ripped from the back, um uh, he's innocent, right? Yeah. Then the final use of the shirt was اذهبوا بقميص هذا فالقوه على وجه ابي يدي بصيرا that yusuf says take my shirt and put it over my father's face and he'll be able to see so you have the beautiful linear progression yeah. of themes and i'm just going to finish off with one more from surah yusuf um and that is contrast so beautiful in in the surah yusuf al islam you have two meetings of the brothers the meeting at the start where they all got together and said you know what inna abana la fi dhalalin mubin our father is not thinking right you know he loves yusuf more let's kill him yeah so the first meeting was to destroy yusuf and at the end of the surah when binyamin's court falamma stay'asu minhu khalasu najiya qala kabiruhum the oldest of them right holds a meeting into how to save the brother binyamin mm. and he says you know falan abrah al ard hatta ya'dana li abi like i'm not moving from here until we find out a way to save so we have we have this beautiful contrast as well oh, yeah um that's um that's heavy that's structures within structures and you know what what genuinely astounds me is that this came from an unlettered man a man who was not sort of known or well versed in language or poetry or uh, artistry and eloquence but he he well he was known for his eloquence in terms of his style of speech but here he was off the cuff you could say for those who don't believe that it's revelation of course off the cuff coming up with this structure and just sort of accidentally accidentally making it this way and that like you said Usman that's in a few examples you shown of one particularly miraculous structure but then if you look in other examples you've got things like palindromes and other structural um, sort of miracles really mm. that you cannot fathom 
just accidentally emerge when you speak. Like imagine like your earlier example, right? We transcribed this entire podcast and we realized that what we've been saying at the beginning is mirroring what we say at the end. Absolutely. Like, imagine that, like someone, for someone to tell us that we accidentally did that is, is unfathomable. It's ridiculous. It'd have to be meticulously planned and done or come from some other source. Yes. But it's just um, mind-blowing, yeah. Uh, as a as a side note, like again, just listening to those beautiful explanations, I something I'd like to get into or, or try and explore a little bit more is the effect of that because it's uh, it's unclear to me that connection it remains a bit unclear. Like I can understand the arrangement aspect of it, how that that's miraculous that you know it can't have been randomly because the Prophet used to basically recite ayat in response to specific questions or events that were taking place before him. And that makes it even more miraculous that the arrangement was not actually, he didn't sit in one place and recite the whole surah, you know, um, and often it wasn't an entire surah that was revealed. It was often ayat that were revealed, you know. Um, so that makes an additionally, because it's like there's a specific cause for why an ayat or a part of the surah is being revealed and so forth. But I, in terms of, you know, when we talk about miracles today and the effect of the miracle on the heart, I wonder if, you know, there's been work done on what kind of effect does that, does it have a specific effect on the, the human heart and the human mind? You know, where you read, where you're reading mm. and, you know, it looks like, it looks like problems are being presented and then in that ring structure, they're being resolved. Does that have a specific you know, miraculous impact on the heart in terms of faham, in terms of understanding the Quran. So I imagine there's been some work on that, Osman. Yeah, look, um, that's a really good question. And um, I, I remember you asked me that once, like maybe last year when we were just having a casual chat about that. Yeah. I'll try to address that, um, but I want to share just a few more examples as well, smaller examples. Yeah. But before that, I'll address that. Look, um, as mentioned earlier, it has that effect on the heart, as in as in the sweetness of faith. But for me, I mean, I never, I used to always hear, you should ponder over the Quran. You should study the Quran. And even Allah says, don't you reflect over the Quran? Yeah. And obviously there's various mediums through which you can reflect, you study. And for me, like to read this and to analyze this. And I'll give you a personal story. I'll give you a personal story. When I read Dr. Raymond Farron's book and he mentioned um, Surah Baqarah is in a, in a chiasma structure. And I was like, no way, Surah Baqarah. Yeah. And he gave, he gave a very brief outline of Surah Baqarah. So what I did was, I think this was three or four Ramadans ago. I, I spent every night trying to, find this as, as pointed out by Dr. Raymond Farron, right? And that experience, which, you know, may, obviously we don't have time to go over that sort of bakra today, but that was so mind-blowing when I was trying to... So Dr. Raymond Farron pointed out, like, certain sections that relate. But within those sections, I found, like, this chiasma structure and, you know, for example... Early on, the challenge was given to the disbelievers. And the corresponding section, you have the challenge to Namrud. So you, I was finding all these amazing connections and... 
you know, that in itself, that experience is, it's almost revelatory. Like when you, when you study and they surface up like these, yeah, these yeah. They, they kind of. And, and I, I suppose it's like, it depends on a person's understanding. Like if a person knows Surah Bakara really well, and then, you know, someone who studied it and has a professor in the language of the Quran comes and makes a point about it, you will, the pieces of the puzzle will come together, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So, like I said, there's, there's requisites to appreciating a miracle. Yeah, it's not absolutely. like every Joe Blow is going to come and appreciate the miracle of the Quran. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And, you know, can I just also point out, um, with these ring structures and these, we have to be very careful that we cannot enforce what we want to see in the Quran. Like, I'll mm. give you an example. Like, yeah. if we're talking about ring structure, chiasmus, um, and they were like, you know what? I want this to be a ring structure, right? And then you just start forcing it into places, yeah. That, that's right. So we have to be very, very careful because the Qur'an is its own authority. Um, and we cannot, uh, you know, we cannot put our own predisposition onto the Qur'an. And during this study, that's why, that's why those who have the authority kind of lead the way and... Um, for people like me, I'm just astonished and I share what I have found out pretty much. I guess, you know, one thing that we did want to mention and we're sort of slightly coming to, and by slightly I mean very much so, I'm coming towards the end of our time. Um, but look, I wanted to just explore a bit about the implications. Like, yep, okay, let's presume now that we've understood this is miraculous. And by that we mean, and like you almost have to stop and just sort of reflect on this as you're saying it, we mean that this speech that we recite comes from outside of this universe, this dunya, this reality. It comes from an otherworldly realm, a supreme being. Like that, if we digest it, is just utterly astonishing. And the question that arises for me is that what should the implications be? Like something so huge can't just stay on bookshelves or, as I said before, be adorned on walls and the walls of masajid and whatnot, you know, as beautiful as it may look in, you know, calligraphy and whatnot. But that's got to move us, surely. That's got to do something huge. Like, Usman, I remember we were talking earlier about um, – something that you could, you know, arguably say is less miraculous, so to speak. But when someone has a child, right, and they experience that, and, you know, often it's described as miraculous, maybe not in the exact same sense, but it is something moving, right? And people will readjust their entire lives, their perspectives, their mindset, their priorities, everything when they have that child because it means something so fundamentally shifting in their lives. But do we have that reaction with the Qur'an? Like that, I think, is a really telling question. And it's something that I guess individuals need to ask themselves. We can't answer that question. It should move us. I think that's the simple answer. But mm. I guess this is more of a rant-reflection on how I guess it doesn't really move us as it should. And that should be, that should really make us ponder, really make us think like, you know, Someone, as I said before, you know, conjures something in front of you. You'd be you'd be blown away. It would it would move you. It would alter you. It would you know change you. But when we read this 
five times a day in our salah, if only that, does it hit us with every verse and every word and every surah that this is from the Creator? And it's so astonishingly powerful, but something I feel personally uh, deeply overlooked, unfortunately. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. Maybe I feel like it's overlooked. Maybe it's underappreciated. That's a really depressing ranting. No, no, it's, it's not depressing. It's more like a question there. It, it's kind of like we need to step it up. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, we need to really yeah. take what this is. And I don't know. I'm going to, if, if I may have permission from my co-host and D guest, I'm going to slightly extend this rant to just implicate the rest of society in this gross denial of the miracle. Like, how can our world sit aside and not rush to have this in practice? How can we as Muslims, as an ummah, not rush to make this Qur'an, this miracle, be implemented and realized and apparent in every single way it can be? Because just as, you know, these verses move us as individuals, these verses should shake the entire world, should shake the dunya, should shake the universe. Indeed, they come from the creator of the universe. So when Allah legislates even one aspect of law, it is a crime beyond belief for that not to be present in this world. Like, and truly, we need to hold ourselves to account. You know, end rant. <laughs> Just a quick, just a really quick comment on that. Um, you know, if you look at the four prophetic missions functions um, that the Prophet had, job description. Uh, right. All right, to recite over them the verses. to purify them. teaching the book. Uh, and, and the hikmah. Now, um, I was reading, um, you know, some scholarly discourse on that. And they're saying, in his prophetic, this prophetic mission can also be seen as um, a process of transformation of an individual and community. So the miraculous nature of the Quran fits in In a way, it's kind of like the first step is to be wowed, yeah. to be taken away from this Quran, ayati, like I know we say verse, it's, it's truly, we use the word verse in English, but it's nothing, uh, it's nothing close to what a verse is. It's a miraculous sign. Each one is a miraculous yep. sign. To be blown away is, is a first step, I guess, for us to take what you're saying more seriously. And, and, and you're yeah. right, the implications are huge. We have professed that this book is transcendent. It's from a divine origin. And then from that point onwards, what are the implications? Huge. Yeah. Um, it's it's something that requires yeah. a lot of thinking on an individual and community level. I think yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, look, uh, I think we are sort of getting to the uh, end of our session. Um, perhaps, Sufyan, I'll invite if there's anything that you'd like to sort of add before we conclude, and then Usman, maybe yourself, any final thoughts and reflections. <laughs> Yeah, look, I just think um, it's beautiful, beautiful discussion. Um, I, there's, a, there's a few things that are, uh, I think, that I'm mulling over as a result, you know, because it's one of those conversations where it's not like, you know, in our typical episode, we talk about current event and the analysis for it. But this is one of those topics that, you know, everyone, we try and have a really personal relationship with to try and like understand at a personal level because the Quran's for all of us, you know, Allah is talking to us directly um 
And so lots of, com- lots of questions and, and, you know, commentary brewing. Um, but, you know, may- maybe we can see a second chapter to this uh, episode for yeah, more yeah, conversation. Perhaps, perhaps we can do that. Yeah, yeah. No, very, um, I really appreciate you coming, Usman, uh, and yeah. sharing your thoughts with us and sharing the fruits of, you know, many years of research and reading with us. It's beautiful. It really, it's very moving and it's very uh, inviting for us to come and sort of study at that level as well, trying to appreciate and reflect at that level as well. Thank you very much for your time, Usman. Um, um, I will ask you, though, any last concluding thoughts, any remarks that you'd want to drop before yeah, we conclude? Look, um, you, did, you did say to me at the start that time will fly. And you were <laughs> does, so huh? right because, you know, I, I almost feel it was rude to ask for more examples, but maybe next time I have so many more mind-blowing, unbelievable yeah. examples to share, which, um, you know, we didn't get time today, which I thought yeah. I would, but that's what, ha- that's what happens in conversations, maybe next yeah. time. But look, yeah, like, you know, I'm just going to invite everyone to try to truly reflect what the Quran means for you um, and, you know, to try to start the journey of establishing a personal relationship with the Quran. Um, and, you know, this is one medium through which you can establish that um, uh, that uh, connection. And I just want to say, uh, like, for example, the examples I provided, there was no prerequisite of any deep Arabic. So, like, a lot of people can start engaging in finding out uh, these m- linguistic miracles um, and therefore use that as an excuse to engage and to reflect. Mm-hmm. And um, therefore, you know, who knows, subhanAllah, and then maybe use that as a means to start learning Arabic and then one day even publishing books for anyone. Why not? You know? Inshallah, have your yeah, own yeah. Uh, to share doctor, that, to share that Raymond journey. Beautiful. Yep, absolutely. All right, well, um, we will leave it at that, inshallah. Jazakallah khair to all those who tuned in. Once again, massive jazakallah khair to uh, Brother Usman Malik for gracing us with his time, presence, reflections and knowledge. Um, thank you all for listening. And once again, as we do, uh, if you've stuck around till the end, then uh, hopefully you've found some goodness and benefit. And please do uh, sign up or like our socials and everything else, Facebook, Instagram. Um, stay up to date, inshallah. We are on every fortnight at, uh, well, it was 7.30, but 7.45 because of Maghrib now. Um, it would be fantastic for you to tune in next week as well. Um, but on that, Jazakallah Khair. Thank you very much, everyone, for your time. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.